Mouse to Mouse, Episode 16. We crossed the line, man. After our brief pit stop in Oklahoma City, it was time to move on to Wichita, Kansas, our seventh state for anyone who happens to be counting. As a child, I heard the iconic Glen Campbell song and for many years had images of strange, island of Dr. Moreau sort of places, inhabited by odd hybrids, half big cat and half human. It was only in adult life that I realised that the title of the track was Wichita Lion Man, rather than Wichita Lion Man. The funny thing about the song that British rock journalist Stuart McConey insists is the greatest ever recorded, is that it actually has more to do with our last stop in Oklahoma than the next one in Kansas. Jimmy Webb, the song's writer, had suggested that it was originally inspired by a family car journey through Washita County, Oklahoma, broadly between Amarillo and Oklahoma City. Oddly enough, probably the closest that we actually got to Washita County was on the journey from Wichita Falls to OKC. And the title of the chorus was changed to Wichita simply because, according to Webb, Wichita sings better. Whatever the truth of this, it strikes me as interesting that... As with so many other American cities that feature prominently in the history of popular music, for most people outside of America, possibly even outside of Kansas, if they know anything at all about Wichita, the probability is that whatever image they have would be mentally overlaid by Glen Campbell and the singing in the wires. Before we could render Webb's lyrics prophetic by driving the main road to Wichita, though, we had something to see on the way out of OKC, the Teamco Gold Dome. The Gold Dome is something of an Oklahoma City and Route 66 icon. Built in 1958, it looks for all the world like the top third of Epcot's spaceship Earth has been sliced off, painted gold and placed atop a single-storey building on the outskirts of town. The dome was actually constructed by the Citizen State Bank and became the first bank building in the world to feature the geodesic dome design of famed futurist architect Buckminster Fuller. Although, to be fair, I suspect this may be a rather narrow field. The building has changed hands many times since its initial construction, and while there have been several periods during which its survival was in some doubt, it was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in September 2004. When we visited the dome, it seemed to be going through another of its down periods, as the building was shuttered and generally looking a little sorry for itself, which was a shame, as we were hoping to have a look around inside. Still, It was nice to see an early foreshadowing of a famous Disney structure, and as we left, we promised to give its regards to its younger and decidedly better preserved relative when we reached Epcot in Orlando. A little further along Oklahoma's section of Route 66, just outside Arcadia, we came across the giant 66-foot soda bottle, repeat with bendy straw that stands outside Pop's Soda Ranch. Pops, for anyone unfamiliar with its legend, is a hybrid gas station, diner and soda wonderland that offers, according to its own publicity, 600 different flavours of carbonated delights. Upon browsing the wall-to-wall coolers, it quickly became apparent, although I admit I didn't count them all, that this is almost certainly no idle boast. There really was every flavour of fizzy pop that one could possibly imagine, and a fair few varieties that would really never have crossed most people's minds. Everything from the humblest variety of Coca-Cola to rather more specialist flavours such as buffalo wing, ranch dressing and even bacon sodas are offered for the refreshment of the weary traveller. While we didn't extend our palates to quite this extreme, we did load up with a half a dozen choice examples for the stated $12 price. 
Annabelle chose a Jelly Belly crushed pineapple. Sarah went for Stuart's grape and Romano's creamy strawberry. While I opted for Henry Weinhardt's black cherry cream and Caruso's maraschino cherry cola. And as a wild card, we all agreed upon a bottle of chocolate soda. We immediately, at the prompting of both kids, opened the pineapple pop. Even though Tyler has never really drunk a fizzy pop, partly because we would like him to reach at least six with some teeth still in his head, and partly because he insists that they are too spicy. And the general verdict, particularly from the back of the car, was that, while incredibly sweet, it was something that the children would be happy to drink on a regular basis. The black cherry cream, on the other hand, did not quite induce the required level of sugar high in the younger members of the party, but was considered a delight by the grown-ups. We resisted the temptation to guzzle our way through the entire treasure trove, as this kind of haul requires a certain degree of sober consideration. So reports and the final ranking of our POPs acquisitions will be forthcoming. One feature of the American road system that became something of a fascination throughout our travels was the way that it was used as an object of local memorial. Of course, pretty much every town seems to have at least one road that carries the name of Dr. Martin Luther King, but then he was, after all, a figure of global importance. But the ones that were of particular interest to us were the virtually unknown souls who have given their names to often rather nondescript sections of road right across the nation. The roll call of patrolmen, firefighters, military veterans and locally notable citizens is too vast to recount. But one that for some reason stuck in my mind, possibly due to the particularly florid prefix, was the Maestro Kenneth Kilgore Memorial Bridge, just outside OKC. It turns out that Maestro Kenneth was actually a notable local musician who had received regional and national honours and was the founding artistic director of the Ambassador's Concert Choir, and as such, I'm sure he was most deserving of his portion of the highway. To me, though, who this man, or for that matter any of the countless other men or women were, is of less significance than the way that they were celebrated within their local communities. I have often observed that America is not really a nation, but 50 different ones, each with their own identities and regional quirks. But making this trip has shown me an even more micro level of civic pride, in which town by town, a group of people who are, more often than not, fiercely American, identify themselves in a very local manner. While to American readers, this will probably seem entirely ordinary, to British eyes, there is something unusual and actually rather special about the interaction of regional, state and national pride. Not that I'm suggesting that America is without internal tensions. The daily morning news segments discussing the latest issues emanating from places like Ferguson, Missouri during our trip were a stark enough reminder of these. But simply put, to the eyes of the outsider, when it works, America has a fascinating way, despite these sometimes crippling tensions, of presenting an image to the world that remains resolutely united behind its own mythology. For someone who comes from a place in which the imagery of our own flag has become so contested, it's interesting to observe the way that, even if they sometimes inwardly criticise the nation that it flies above, a unified American commitment to the image of old glory seems externally unshakable. On reaching the exit toll booth of the Kansas Turnpike, we were surprised at just how warmly we were greeted by the man who took our fee. On receiving our change and hearing Sarah's accent, he proceeded to engage us in a friendly and lengthy conversation about why we had come to Wichita, whether we had a place to stay and if there was anything he could do to help us to find our way there. There was actually a moment at which I thought he was going to hop into the car and take us all home for a pot roast. 
As I've mentioned previously, there is sometimes a European snootiness about the supposed insincerity of the have-a-nice-day culture in America. But this was not a man performing friendliness, but a real human being who was genuinely interested in where this family of Brits in a car had been and wanted, if possible, to help them in any way he could. I had read in Dave Gorman's excellent America Unchained about how he had found Kansans to be the warmest and most helpful people he had encountered. And our new friend in the toll booth was doing nothing to damage that reputation. All the while, a sizeable traffic jam was beginning to line up behind us. So you might expect that this happy interlude would be rudely interrupted by the impatient honking of horns. But this was a Kansas traffic jam, in which red faces and gesticulation seemed to have been miraculously replaced with smiles and affable gestures. As we were to find out, over the next couple of days, Kansas, it seems, really is one of the friendliest places on earth. It made me wonder whether L. Frank Baum might have got things back to front when he wrote about Dorothy finding a magical land at the other end of the rainbow. But then again, it was pretty obvious why she was so desperate to get home to Kansas.